Second Samuel chapter seven this morning. I'm going to start with a little uh, American history or civics. Um, probably the most famous line from any speech given by an American president. Can you guess what it is? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Who said that? John F. Kennedy. He said that during his inaugural address. The idea behind that quote is simple. He's saying, how will you contribute to the public good? And it's a great line, but we're going to turn it on its head today. Now, you probably in churches, you've heard pastors say things like, what are you going to do for your church? How are you going to serve God? How are you going to serve in the kingdom? But I'm going to give you the main point of 2 Samuel 7 hopefully in a memorable way, even before we read it, because this chapter is definitely the most important chapter in the book. So you picked a good Sunday to show up or to listen. Um, But it might be one of the most important in the Bible. And I don't say that lightly. So here's here's the main point. You ready? Ask not what you can do for God... But what will God do for you? Ask not what you can do for God, but what God will do for you. Now that is not the emphasis of modern American Christianity, but it is the emphasis of biblical Christianity. God is far less concerned or interested in what we are going to do for him, and far more interested in our trusting him to do something for us. There is no quid pro quo in the kingdom of God. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse one. And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now David is talking about building a temple. And you can see the the good intentions here. And even God's prophet thinks this is a good idea. He says the Lord is with you. But that same night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, the key words in that question are you and me. And so read it with emphasis. Would you build me a house to dwell in? In other words, 
Are you talking to me? And so God is questioning David's plan and his motives. Now, if we've learned anything about God from our study of Samuel and even Judges, we know for sure that God is not leaving his kingdom in human hands. Do you remember when the ark was captured by the Philistines? How did it get back to Israel? You remember God brought it back on a cart that was being pulled by two milk cows? There were no humans involved. And so there's a very important lesson coming in this chapter for David and also for us. Verse 6. God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God says, Have you ever heard me say anything about building a house? No. And do you know why you haven't? Because I'm already with my people. Because my people have been on the move. And I am determined to be with my people. I care about them. Not a house. Not a temple. Verse 8. We're going to read a kind of a long section here. So, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the longest speech by God since he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so for that reason alone, it demands our attention as the people of God this morning. But what does God say? What is He saying? He's making a lot of promises, right? That entire speech is all promises that He's making to David. And He promises, He he reinforces some old promises that He made to His people. And He also makes some new ones. And in some ways, these promises will be fulfilled in David's literal son, Solomon. But if you're reading closely, you probably recognize this is bigger than David and Solomon. In fact, Tertullian, one of the earliest church fathers, said, if you tell me this chapter is only about Solomon, you will send me into a fit of laughter. Because who's it really about? It's about Jesus, right? And what's the message What's God really saying? He's saying to them, I am not leaving my kingdom in human hands. God is not leaving His people behind. God is not leaving His plan to chance. One day, the Son of God will come. Someone who will be a son to me, God says. A descendant of David, yes. But He will be the one to establish this forever kingdom, this eternal kingdom. He will be the one to actually dwell with His people. He will be the one to get the glory of a king for all of it. Now, God never uses in 2 Samuel chapter 7 the word covenant. But most commentaries highlight the similarities between this chapter and and the other covenants that God makes in the Old Testament. And it certainly sounds like a covenant. Specifically, it most reminds me of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. And I would encourage you to go look at that later today. If you're a student of the Bible, you want to go back and read Genesis 17. Compare it to 2 Samuel 7. And what you'll see in both places is that God says... Over and over again, I will. I will. He says, let me tell you what I will do. It's impossible to miss it. Fifteen times in eight verses, God tells David something that he's going to do for him. Or something he already did. And it reads, if you're reading it closely, it reads like a jackhammer on David's self-reliance. He's saying, 
You're going to build me a house, David? Sit down, shepherd boy, and let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. Verse 18. And King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction from mankind, O Lord God. So it's obvious David gets the message. He's he's humbled. And notice that phrase that he uses at the end of verse 19. This is instruction from mankind. David makes an important connection by saying that. And it would be very easy for us to miss it. So I want to point it out to you. That phrase in Hebrew is Torah Ha'adam, which means law for Adam. Law for Adam. In other words, David is saying to God, I see the way you deal with mankind. And this is for all of us, he says, not just me. He's saying, I see the way you deal with humans. Your plans have not changed. Your character has not changed. Your covenant has not changed. Now, if, you're, if you know much about theology, this is, um, this is a win for covenant theology and a mark against dispensationalism. Okay? So, in other words, God is not changing His plan with David. Right? So, if you're not familiar with dispensationalism, what that means is God tried dealing with us through, uh, through Adam a certain way, and that didn't work out, so He scrapped that plan. He said, well, I'm going to deal with you through Abraham, and that didn't really work out, so let's try Moses. Here's the law. See if that helps. No, that's not really... So, let's go to David. Okay? And eventually, he's like, well, nothing's going to work except Jesus. Right? But that's actually not what God is doing, I don't think, in the Old Testament. What He's doing is not changing the plan. He's only revealing more of the same plan. You see, God is moving our focus, but the, the plan itself remains unchanged. He always intended to send Jesus. Instead, what it is, is that Adam was our representative. Abraham was our representative. Moses was our representative. David, all of them standing in for the greater representative that God was going to send. The second Adam, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Himself. And in some beautiful way, David seems to recognize that God has this plan. He doesn't understand it all. But he's just one of many. Verse 20. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So David knows his place. right? He sees God as the giver. 
He understands himself to be the receiver. And he understands that God's trying to show him something, trying to teach him something. Do you see that? Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So David is understanding God's grace, and that understanding of what God is doing is leading directly to worship. You see that? All right, verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever And you, O Lord, became their God. What's he doing? David is rehearsing back to God the story of God's salvation. He's just telling the story. Which is what we actually do in worship, right? So if you think about worship, what are we really doing? We get together every week and we rehearse what God did for us. We talk it back to Him. Verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever... The word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you've spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. That's, um, that's God's word for today. Now I want you to notice, I want you to notice first of all that David's prayer, which is what this is, prayer, it began with praise and it ended with petition. Do you sense that? So he, he starts with, here's, here's why you're awesome, God, and, and now here's what I want to ask you to do. And that's actually a a great pattern for our own prayers. In fact, it's the pattern that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer when He teaches His disciples. He's like, you know, this is what I want you to pray. Okay, kind of starts with who God is and what He's doing, and then here's what I want you to ask. Also notice the content of David's prayer requests. And what I want you to notice is that David doesn't ask God for anything new. That's not that it's wrong to do that. You certainly can ask God whatever you want. But in this instance, David, all he does is repeat back to God the promises that David just made. Did you notice that? So God makes all these great promises and then the Bible records for us David asking God to do what God just said he would do. 
Now, is that interesting? It is to me. Why does David do that? Why is he asking God for the things that God literally just finished promising him? Is it because David doesn't trust God? I don't think that's it. Actually, I think it's a demonstration of David's trust in God. And I'm going to try to convince you of that. Okay, We actually see this a lot in Scripture. In Numbers 14, when Moses interceded for Israel, he did the same thing. He repeated God's promises back to God. In Isaiah 37, when Hezekiah intercedes over the siege of Jerusalem, you know what he did? He repeated God's promises back to God. When Daniel interceded for the exiles in Daniel chapter 9, you know what Daniel did? He repeated God's promises back to God. If you read the Apostle Paul's prayers for the church throughout his letters, you know what they're dominated by? God's promises for the people of God. Now why? Why is that focus so obvious in Scripture that they're only praying for the things basically that God's already said He was going to do? Are they afraid that God's going to forget? What he promised to do? Are they concerned that God is not going to follow through on what he promised to do? I thought of a way to try to explain this. So parents, if you have children or if you, you've ever been a child, which was all of us, this will, this will apply. Okay, So parents, if you tell your kids that you're going to do something fun, but you don't tell them when it's going to happen, What are they going to do? They're going to ask about it constantly, right? Constantly. Dad, you said we were going to get ice cream. When's that going to happen? Right? Dad, you said we were going to go to the park. When's that going to happen? Right? Dad, you said we were going to go to Disney. Probably shouldn't say that until it's time. Um, but what are they going to do? They're going to ask about it constantly, right? And hopefully, they know you to be faithful. They know that you keep your word. That's not why they're asking. They hopefully, if you're a decent parent, they understand you're eventually going to follow through on what you said you were going to do. But they keep asking anyway. And the reason we do this as parents. We actually sometimes do it on purpose, right? Why? Because we're trying to build anticipation. You ever thought about it that way? We do this on purpose sometimes to build anticipation. And what I want to suggest to you is that God is a good and faithful Father who loves building anticipation in His children. He is intentionally building an audience. What I'm saying is this. God has always intended to save His people from sin and death and sickness and hunger and everything else wrong with the world. He's always intended to do that, but He wanted His people to know it was Him. 
He wanted them to recognize His salvation when it came. He wanted them to witness it. He wants us to witness it. And so, those prayers of the saints in the Bible, praying God's promises back to Him, indicate to us hearts and minds that were prepared to witness God's salvation. They knew what they were looking for. It's not that they didn't trust God or they didn't think He was going to follow through. David says to God, God, I'm bringing nothing to the table. This is all You. And God, I see You. Just do what You said You were going to do. I'm watching. I'm waiting. I'm ready to see it. Let's go, God. When's the ice cream? You said you were going to do it. I'm watching. Which means that we're spectators. And and I want to suggest to you that that is possibly, as Christians, that's our most important job in the kingdom of God. We sit in the stadium of God, watching Him win the game for us, and our job is to cheer. And because He is so amazing, because the game is so gripping, because it's so awesome, we want to tell as many people as possible so that they will come and watch the game with us and learn about God's promises and speak them back to God with us. And I I can't summarize the message of our text better than that. This comes from the ESV Transformation Study Bible. I thought, it was, I thought it was really well written. It says this, How easily our imaginations can be captured by and our energies exhausted by what, what we want to build for God. When what He really wants is for us to sit attentively witnessing what He is building so that we may marvel and give Him thanks. You see what they're saying? And all I might add to this is so that we may marvel and give Him thanks and tell other people about it. That's our job. John chapter 2. Right after Jesus cleans the temple, so He goes in, you know, uh, you, know that, you know that saying, what would Jesus do? Okay, Jesus took a whip to church, so don't do that. But he went to church, he went to the temple, and he drove out the money changers. Remember this story? Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what gives you the right to be clearing us out with a whip? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that He said this and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. He, 
is the place where God dwells with man. His death and resurrection accomplished the work that was necessary to bring God's people back into fellowship with God. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's why we're here, right? In Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul visited Athens, which was a pagan city, he looked around at all their elaborate statues and temples and inscriptions to gods, and he used all of that to share the gospel. Look at what he says, verse 24, Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And this dovetails perfectly with what 2 Samuel 7 is trying to teach us about God. And so my question for us today is this. Is your religion about what you are going to do for God? Or is it about what God will do for you? And what does your worship tell you about your faith? What does your heart tell you about your faith when you come to worship God? Are you coming? I got to go to church today. Got to get right with God. He's watching. Right? What do your prayers tell you about your faith? How you approach God in worship and in prayer will tell you everything you need to know about your heart. Are you fascinated and humbled by the grace of God for you? Are you obsessed with His promises? Does it excite you like a child hearing they're going to Disney, right? You realize you're going to live forever? That's what we believe. The pain, the sickness, the struggle, it's going to go away one day. Do you you believe that? You find yourself repeating that back, Lord, how long? How long till that happens? Because this ain't easy. Are you obsessed with His promises? Or are you too busy trying to build a religion? Trying to build God a house, a box to put Him in. God doesn't live in a box. God would rather have your heart and live in a tent. Ask not what you can do for God, but what God will do for you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for trying to put you in a box. Forgive us for thinking that our serving you is what earns us salvation. And Father, help us to come to you as David does in this prayer, humble, with empty hands, 
Who am I, O Lord, who am I that You would bless me? Who are we that You would bless us? Father, I pray in that knowledge, in that grace, we would, in our hearts, that we would rise and give You praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.